The White House is drafting a new cybersecurity workforce strategy. It comes as both government and industry continue to face a steep deficit of cyber talent. The White House thinks, though, it can at least unify agency efforts to recruit, train, and retain these people. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday reports. Agencies have long struggled to compete with the private sector for technology talent. Mounting cybersecurity threats combined with a tight labor market casts an especially acute focus on efforts to recruit and retain cyber employees at this year's Billington Cyber Summit in Washington. National Security Agency Deputy Director George Barnes. We're in tough competition for talent. All of you are. That's something that's germane to our whole industry. NSA's always had a challenge getting talent. That challenge continues to mount. According to CyberSeek, there are nearly 715,000 open cyber and IT positions across the country. The public sector makes up about 39,000 of those unfilled cyber positions. The White House's Office of the National Cyber Director is now developing a new national cyber and workforce education strategy. The workforce plan will cut across both the public and private sectors and include a big focus on training and education. But for federal agencies, Deputy National Cyber Director Camille Stewart-Gloster says the effort should help bring more cohesion to what have often been disparate attempts to address cyber talent gaps. We want to get a view across the entire federal ecosystem of the work that's going on, clarify some of the roles and responsibilities, identify the metrics and benchmarks that are working, and then figure out if and how we can promulgate them across the federal ecosystem so that we can be more action-oriented and leverage those metrics, and then create new opportunities. Noting that there are some cyber workforce programs that may need to grow and others that may shrink, Gloucester said the forthcoming plan will also include a strong emphasis on implementation not just high-level goals. You should see some change in the coming years as a result of this strategy and the infrastructures that we'll put in place to drive implementation. And that'll be the biggest thing that's different from probably what we've seen in the past. There have been a lot of federal workforce strategies. The goal is to create an implementation mechanism and the coherence through um, collaboration and a continuous dialogue at the leadership level that should actually drive towards the goals that we outline in that strategy. The Defense Department is also planning to release a new cybersecurity workforce strategy likely within the next 60 days, according to Chief Information Officer John Sherman. He says increasing and diversifying cyber talent is this generation's space race. And the new cyber talent strategy will fit within DOD's broader workforce development goals. We need to learn differently on how we retain, recruit, upskill, because a 30-year career path that maybe a lot of us have had, it may not be what will take us into the future. We need to think differently about how we have people come into the department for a while, go work for you all in industry, and maybe come back in in a while without our security folks head blowing up because they had some foreign travel in there. That's what I'm after with the cyber workforce strategy. The Pentagon is also eyeing an expansion of its major cyber talent program. First authorized in 2016, the Cyber Accepted Service has been slow to get off the ground. It gives DOD more speed and flexibility in hiring for cyber and some IT jobs compared to the traditional civil services hiring classification and compensation practices. The Pentagon can hire Cyber Accepted Service candidates directly without posting the position on USA Jobs, and it can also offer higher pay in some cases compared to the traditional general schedule system. Mark Gorak is Principal Director for Resources and Analysis in the DOD CIO's office. We have Cyber Accepted Service, and we are expanding that program across the department. 
uh, right now it's about 15,000. In the end state, mill and civ will be about 200,000. Small compared to the 4 million we have in DOD, but still a huge program. While both government and industry are struggling to fill cyber positions, agency officials often admit they will never be able to compete with the private sector on pay, even with special hiring programs. But agencies are increasingly turning to rotational programs, where industry employees can serve in government for short tours of duty and vice versa. The CIA is among those agencies. It recently established a technology fellows program that gives private sector employees the opportunity to spend six to 12 month stints working at the CIA, according to Director Bill Burns. And then also to make it possible for some of our officers to get experience, again, for shorter periods of time in the private sector as well. So, you know, we face a real challenge in building greater flexibility into how we connect better with the private sector. We're never going to be able to match in the U.S. government the kind of salaries or, you know, economic benefits that that you can find in lots of parts of the tech sector as well. What we can offer, though, are fascinating problems to solve. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency also launched a Cyber Innovation Fellows program in June. It brings in private sector officials for months at a time to work part-time on CISA teams doing threat hunting, vulnerability management, and incident response duties. CISA is also focusing on its workforce as part of a soon-to-be-released strategic plan. Director Jen Easterly says the pillars of the forthcoming document include a section on agency unification. She noted how CISA was only recently spun out from a Department of Homeland Security headquarters unit. We're built off the back of a staff element. We're now a full-grown operational component, and we absolutely need to build a unified agency that is grounded in the culture that we are building, the core principles and our core values of collaboration, innovation, service to the nation, and accountability to the American people. CISA is also focused on increasing diversity and inclusion in the cybersecurity field. Easterly laid out a goal to have women and underrepresented minorities make up at least 50% of the cybersecurity community by 2030. That's how we're going to tap into a much more thoughtful community because we're leveraging the incredible diversity out there and that's women but it's neurodiversity it's diversity of gender identity and sexual orientation and race and national origin background skills because that equals diversity of thought and that makes us better problem solvers and it's not just the right thing to do it's the smart thing to do because the data shows more diverse organizations actually are more productive have less turnover risk, have less sick days. And so we all need to work together for the security of the nation. And that's how we're going to get after this workforce problem. Justin Doubleday, Federal News Network. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief 
Policy Advisor, Science and Technology, and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. 
But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly, you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done, no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish I wish and it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader too is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. 
I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small-town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.